1: Hi, I'm Louise Goodman and you're listening to the fantastic Cut to the Race podcast.
2: Hello and welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. We're recording on a Thursday, which is a bit unusual, but it is the Easter weekend. Uh, On the show today with us, we have Dan, our writer, Emma, also a writer, Callum, who uh, sorts out our social media stuff, and we've got someone so much more interesting than them on the show. I'm having a bit of a fanboy moment, I'm not gonna lie, but we have Louise Goodman, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Please don't fanboy me. It's very sweet of
2: you. Um, I think a lot of people like me who who grew up in in sort of my generation um, following motorsport will have heard you every weekend on the TV. And for those that don't know who you are, Louise, what, what would you say you are in
1: one sentence? I would say I am a motorsport reporter and TV presenter who also runs her own media and presentation skills training company.
2: Amazing! Well, Well, I might
1: the last bit were
2: you? Well, I was actually, but I I was also thinking I might need a few tips after this. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep in contact. Um, So, Louise, tell me, how did you get involved in motorsport in the first place? Because it's yeah, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you were the first F1 female presenter. Um, was it always a passion of yours or did you sort of stumble
1: into it? No, i I stumbled into it. Um, you're right, in the latter case, it came about because I met a guy called Tony Jardine. Um, I was actually working in powerboat racing. So I was working in journalism on a small, uh, for a small publishing company um, and I was on a, a powerboat racing magazine and i met tony when uh he was handling the pr for the virgin atlantic challenge which was a great big powerboat that did the uh the blue ribbon crossing many years ago um and then I, I kind of met him again at a mutual friend's barbecue and I just overheard him saying to somebody that he was setting up his own PR company. So Tony Jardine, for those people who don't know, um, has been involved in motorsport for many, many years. He, I think he started off as a tire fitter for Goodyear back in the day, um, but but has been involved heavily on the, uh, on the PR side, running his own company. And, and he'd worked for a company called CSS Promotions, was just setting up his own company and was looking for somebody to go and work with him. I was looking to, I was going traveling, so I was looking for for an easier job than editing the magazine. Um, so when I heard him say he was looking for somebody, we kind of had a quick chat and so said that was it. So I went to work for Tony. And so he was my entree really into, into the world of motor racing because that was an, an area that he'd been working in for quite some time. So the first job we had was, was launching camel um there um when they came into formula one sponsoring the the lotus formula one team with senna and nakajima so that was really my world my entree into into the world of motorsport um you know and and i came in at the top at the formula one level which you know kind of pisses people off I'd imagine who'd been grafting away <laughs> in junior formulae. and I'd never been to somewhere like Alton Park or Croft and you know until recent years so so that was really how it came about I'd never set out to work in motorsport I like cars um, I grew up in a town in Hampshire called Orsford which is where Derek Warwick um, and his family lived so I used to walk past Warwick trailers on, on my way to school and Derek was stock car racing at the time um, so I knew that was where the racing driver you know that was the family business because he was in the local paper but Never, never, ever did it cross my mind that I was, you know, going to work in 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 motorsport and in, and in Formula One for the past God knows how many decades. So it was a, a set of happy circumstance, really.
3: I'm assuming you've met and interviewed and spoken with many people over the years you've been doing it. Who is the standout person that you have interviewed during you your career? Like, was there a certain moment with a certain person that will always stay with you forever, and you'll just forever look back on that as that was the pinnacle of my career?
1: George Clooney. That's high up there. That's probably you probably think you're racing. <laughs> not,
3: not the answer <laughs> I expected, but <laughs> <very
1: well. laughs> that that was that was the one that, that loads of people commented on the time. That was at the uh, the Monaco Grand Prix. Um, in fact, I got George. Clooney, Brad Pitt and Matt Damon all at the same time, they were down there promoting Oceans 10, 11, 12, whatever it was at the time, wow. so um, so. But I suppose in motor racing, to, it's difficult to pick out one interview, there are several ones that will always stick in my mind, so I remember one of my very, very first, when I, when I first went, so I was a press officer for five or six years. And then got into the TV side of things again, that was just being approached by ITV who were looking for a female reporter to be on the team and they kind of wanted somebody who knew about motorsports so they they said was I interested so I had no, no TV experience no broadcasting experience I'd never trained in broadcasting anything like that they kind of gave me a microphone and said off you go one of my early Jaws interviews, Melbourne, which was our first Grand Prix, I remember interviewing Eddie Irvine, who I'd worked with. I'd been his press officer um, when we were at both at Jordan Grand Prix. Um, and I it was an, a, an interview on the grid and he was kind of sitting down on the on the sort of grass verge on the on the edge of the grid with his back up against the wall. And I knew because I knew Eddie, if I asked him to stand up, he'd tell me to get stuff. So I just sat down beside him because it was just the easier way to go about it rather than having to have an argument with him. And afterwards, Neil Duncanson, who was our sort of the heading up the the ITV coverage, he said, that was exactly what we wanted a different style a different way of going about things I I didn't have the heart to tell him it was only because you know I knew I'd get told to get stuffed if I'd asked Eddie to stand up but so that's a standout interview because it was it was my first and you know one of my very first and it it went really well Uh, another one that always I remember is the first interview with Eddie Jordan when Jordan won their first Grand Prix in Spa which was something having been his press officer I'd, I'd said to him, you win your first Prix, I want the first bloody interview so I it was elbows out and battled my way through but EJ bless him he was like, no, I'm talking to her, I'm talking to her so so that one for for personal reasons I I just loved um you know because that was it was fulfilling a, a promise, something that both of us wanted to do. And then probably one of my my biggest interviews, one of my final interviews with ITV during the F1 days was was the interview with Lewis when he won his first world championship. So all the drama of of that Grand Prix. And then, of course, after the race, it absolutely pissed down with rain. So and the the post-race interviews were somewhat more chaotic then than than they are now. So because Lewis wasn't on the podium and we were only guaranteed getting the top three drivers um, the you know the podium interviews back then it, we had to kind of run around and grab other people so there was no mechanism in place for bringing the man of the moment Lewis Hamilton to the media so it was all a all a bit of a bun fight and as I say it was pissing down with rain and that was a proper elbows out moment because I was just so <laughs> and if you look at the footage of that now. You know, my earphones are half off and, and I'm absolutely drenched. And like the camera shot is going everywhere because it was such a bun fight. But obviously, as a as a as a sign off for ITV, that was that was our final race covering Formula One. That was a that was a big moment. So that you know that was that was a big interview for me to get as well. So I guess those are those those are some that really sort of stand out for me.
2: I, I was going to say if if I had to pick one moment of of Louise Goodman over the years, it would have been that two thousand and eight moment where it was just chaos. I mean, you were there when. I, I, Really, that was a moment in history for F1 that that people remember forever. What's it like getting to be in that moment? Because not many people get to experience that.
1: It's a a bit of a, because that moment that you're viewing back at home, I'm responsible for bringing it to you. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, it's quite pressurised because... Everybody wanted to talk to Lewis and I needed to make sure that, you know, he's a British. There's a, there's a sort of unwritten rule, the way that it worked then. As I say, obviously, it's different now because the drivers, everybody, it's very clearly delineated in the pen that you'll see. And the press officers bring the drivers to you and they. But back then it was a bit more everybody, you know, every man or woman for themselves here. So so I really did have to. Everybody wanted that story. That was the story of the race. And I had to make sure that our viewers got it. That they got that interview, so I was kind of stuck to the back of Lewis as his press officer got, kind of took him through that crowd, which is why I look so dishevelled. Because of course the media had all made way for Lewis to come through. I'd stuck to his back, and then they kind of closed back in, so my cameraman was was kind of trapped behind. But it, so it's it's panic would be too strong, but you know the pressure was really on me to to get that to get that first interview with him. So so yeah, it's times like that, you know what what you're seeing as a viewer, is very, in some ways, different to what I'm experiencing. You're, you're wrapped up in the moment and the joy of Lewis winning his first championship. I'm, I'm slightly cacking myself that somebody else might get in there before I get this interview, So because that's my, that's my priority.
0: You've mentioned previously that you worked with Jordan, Formula One team. How does that differ from working for the external media on an average race weekend or over the year as a whole?
1: Well, as, as a press officer, I, I was kind of I was I was the poacher. Sorry, I was the gamekeeper. I was I was the one trying to, you know, manage the 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 interaction with the journalist. As now, I'm on the other side of the fence. I'm I'm the poacher. I'm the one who's trying to get in there and 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 get what I can. So it, it's kind of two sides of the of the same, uh, you know, same sphere. But you're coming at it from from very different directions. So. And I have to say, you know, I I was working as a press officer in the days, pre-social media, pre, you know, internet connection, pre-internet, quite frankly, you know, so it was, it was a different, it was a very different job then. We live in a 24 hour media age now, back then, you know, the, the, the journalists, filed their copy over the phone back to Fleet Street. The photographers were all by the swimming pool by three o'clock in the afternoon once you know qualifying had finished because they got all the pictures. They couldn't do anything with them other than shove them in their bag, ready to take on the plane back with them on Sunday night. So it was a it was a
4: different, different media age, that's for sure. Working at Jordan, you must have worked very closely with Eddie Jordan himself. And I know that he's he's quite a lively character. I think he's as mad as a box of frogs as Eddie. You're right. <laughs> he's really opinionated which is something that i absolutely love about him um but what was it like working with him what sort of things did you learn um from eddie
1: <laughs> he oh he was brilliant fun to work with and, and he's still a mate now you know we still have a, have a load of banter eddie uh one of eddie's many phrases is "We fucking made you, We fucking own you and so we'll have that banter going back with it was I fucking made you a fucking megastar EJ, We fucking made you, that's the fucking use the language but there's always a fucking involved there with, with EJ so you know he was, he was brilliant fun to work for because myself and Ian Phillips who was the commercial director we used to joke does anybody, Eddie, Eddie's tooth, favorite things and this is what we used to say he, he likes being rich and he likes being famous so we used to say okay who's going to have a busy day does he want to be rich today or does he want to be famous today so but the fact that he loves the media side of things he loves the spotlight he was actually quite easy to deal with and every now and then he'd throw this like oh, I'm not fucking talking to them I'm too fucking big. and you just had to say all right no no problem Eddie I've, I've told the journalist you won't talk to him what what <laughs> oh, fucking tell him to come back or talk to him. So so he was very, he was very amenable. Um, so as, as a press officer, having somebody like EJ to deal with, he was very happy to talk to the media the whole time. And yeah, he, he quotes fall out of his mouth, don't they? He's uh, mm. you know, he, he's great to work with on, on that side. He's a great character. You know, every sport needs characters. Um, that's, and, and half the time... You know, sometimes Eddie talks absolute bullshit, but he talks it in such an engaging, entertaining way. And and then to be fair to Eddie, you know, sometimes he comes out with absolute blinders, you know, fantastic little insider bits of information. Um, so, yeah, it was never, never a dull moment. It was a, it was a rock and roll F1 lifestyle. It was fabulous. Loved it.
2: I think we're going to need to get Eddie on this podcast because you're right. He's he's not censored like everyone else in the paddock. He just says what he thinks, and I think that's that's becoming a rare thing. But um, enough about Eddie. Enough about Eddie. Um, so working within a prior, uh, with, with within an F1 team before you became obviously a, a part of the media, did that give you a, a bit of an advantage? Of you knew how to approach people, you knew the in, inner workings.
1: Well, that's that's the only reason I was employed. You know, I knew mean, nothing <laughs> about broadcasting. No, I mean, I, I, it, but it's quite true. You know, the, um, the consortium, it was called MAC1, it was called. So it was Meridian, Anglia and Chrysalis TV. There were various different production companies that were bidding to get the contract with ITV to make the programmes. And it was MAC1, Meridian and Anglia Chrysalis this little consortium that approached me and said, are oh, you interested in being on our bid? Because they wanted, they knew about making television programmes they needed people who knew about the paddock and knew what to ask who to ask it of and when to ask it as well because that's an important thing if you if you want to get information from people there's no you need to be able to read a read a garage understand the nuances of, of what's going on know the right people to to ask and the right questions to ask them in order to sort of get that respect and build up that, that working relationship with people. So yeah, trust me, they didn't employ me for my broadcast. I'd never go back. Bradley Lord, who's now the head of communications at Mercedes, every now and then he, he pisses me off by reminding me that he watched my first interviews from, and I can remember, you know, just, i high high voice, sort of high squeaky voice because I was so frightened, so frightened. I, you know, I literally they gave me a microphone and said, off you go. James Allen was great. He kind of gave me a few pointers about, you know, ask a question this way rather than that way. But I, I, the rest of it, I kind of made, a, made up as I went along. So so it was quite, it was quite daunting. And, you know, at times back then, just because there were less channels, so a lot, but we'd have millions and millions of people tuning in, five, six, seven million, you know, that's a lot of people to, to listen to you learning how to do a job really, isn't it? It, it so I tried to block that out of my mind as, as much as possible. But I mean, yeah, at times, you know, I just, I was, I was, no, ner- I was incredibly nervous. Um, and when you're incredibly nervous, that comes out in your voice. But yeah, it, as I say, they employ me because I knew the people. I knew my topic as well. That's an important thing. If you're going to have respect, no matter what it is you're interviewing on, you need to ask a sensible question in order to get a sensible answer. So
3: have you, have you ever been floating around the paddock? and someone's just sort of come out of a garage up to you and sort of said, do you fancy having a go in this? And they've let you sort of jump in the car and just unleash yourself around a lot. I like. Have you ever been able to do that?
1: Funnily enough, not many Formula One teams want you to have a go in there.
3: (laughs) I don't necessarily mean in in the actual F1 (laughs) car. I mean, maybe Bert Mylander approached you and said jump in the safety car, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to get my hands on the new Aston that they've got now as well. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, I'd, I'd have happily had to go in the Merc. I mean, that that for me was the sexiest car out there for the last few years. Since they, you know, since the the Formula One cars don't sound quite so quite so exciting. No, I mean, I, I listen. I, I, the minute I was on television, I did get people saying, "Do you want?" To, so I, I I got to do some rallying, which was fantastic. You know, I was approached and asked if I wanted to. Take part in the Ford Car Championship. But they wouldn't have asked me that if I was still a press officer at Jordan, that's for sure. So, um, you know, I got to, I was, I was in not only the first ever race for two-seater Formula One cars, but the first ever crash for two-seater Formula One cars. So when Paul Stoddart built his two-seaters, he had a little race up at um at uh, Donington, Um, and I was in the back of Alonso's car. So I got to experience that. And in fact, I I kind of probably would have been Renault at a French Grand Prix one year. They've got some some old F1 cars, albeit rather detuned F1 cars that they, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for these things. So I'll stick my hand up and go, yeah. And it's only afterwards I think, oh, shit, I don't know what I'm doing. But <laughs> um, So, yeah, I have I have been lucky enough to have a few experiences like that. I mean, in the Formula One car, and well, I say annoyingly, probably very sensibly, they stuck a pace car out in front of us. So I was trying, A, first off, don't bloody stall the thing when you leave the pits and look like a total eejit. Um, and then I was just trying to lag back a bit, so I could actually floor it and get some sense of the. I say floor it. I wasn't going to floor it. I was scared the bejesus out of myself. But just to get some kind of feeling of the of the power of it. So so yeah, I uh, no team has ever said, "Oh, would you want to come in and drive this?" Um, but but I have been lucky enough to, because of the position that I'd been in and the job that I do, to to get some driving experiences that maybe wouldn't have come so easily to other people. That's for sure. Perks of the job. Nobody's offered said, "Do you fancy driving our touring car yet?" But I live in hope.
0: <laughs> so you've had, you know, you've been in F one for for many years, and you've done some commentary in your time as well. Do you have a best moment, but also a toughest moment that you've commentated on?
1: Um, tough moments. Um,
2: sounds like we may have already covered the tough moment with Lewis. <laughs>
1: Um, there have been, I think, tough moments tend to revolve around tough, tough circumstances, so uh, difficult circumstances rather than tough circumstances. So it it, it, it kind of revolves around accidents and, and incidents. I mean, the one that instantly springs to mind is not in F1, but in the British Touring Car Championship. You know, we were we were live on air when Billy Munger had his accident. And it's a it's a very um, delicate line that you have to walk there part of my job is to obviously tell people inform people what's going so there's several strands at something like a touring car race i've got to inform my director what's happening because the race is delayed, we need to kind of have a plan for what's happening and when it's happening so that we can, because we've still got a television programme to, to put on. So do we show a race from earlier? Do we just fill for 10 minutes? So there's that all going on. But also I've got to find out the, the, the medical information and, and get information. It very much comes down to, to knowing knowing who to ask um and and having a relationship with people. So so Paul Trafford, um who's the the sort of chief medical officer at the touring car races, you know, Trafford knows me well enough to know that he can trust me with information. So there's that. But then also you you have to be very careful, you know, the, the people's friends and families are watching this. Um, so you need to make sure that the information that you're that you're giving out is is not personal information that they they wouldn't want shared um and it's done in a in a sensitive and, and respectful manner so so that's not one interview per se but that's a, that's an idea of the scenario when it's most difficult to and also most important to get it right most interviews you know if you screw up a bit if you ask a dumb question sometimes the wrong thing comes out of your mouth that you know is it the end of the world? No, it's not at all. But in a very, in a, in a tricky situation like that, it's really, it's really, really important. What a driver says when he's run away, saw how had a crash, you know, just spun off or whatever. And there's there's no injury. You know, it's not the it's not the end of the world in any way, shape or form. So I think those are the most challenging, not so much interviews, but media situations to be in.
0: I think, yeah, just if you're looking at a recent example as well, with Grosjean's crash in Bahrain last year, as a person sat there watching it, I was really dialed into what the commentators were saying at that point because of how shocked I was that it had just happened. So everything you said needed to be so precise and accurate. Is there The pressure there must I mean, have been quite high.
1: Absolutely. I mean, thank God Grosjean was out of that car so yeah. quickly. That story, you know, so it was like... It was almost you could do it all on one intake of breath, but you could you could let your breath out reasonably quickly. Um, because thank God he, he was okay. But yeah, it's it's it is tricky. And you know, all of us there, we're human. We're yeah, we're there working, but we're also having the same human response as as you were having sitting at home watching this this awful drama unfolding on the television. So But you've got to make sure, you know, that you you don't let your your personal feelings get in the way of your professional role that that you're undertaking at that time.
2: Mm. And I think the other one that that, that reminds me of this is Murray Walker, when obviously it was in, in Imola and exactly the same scenario and how... That just shows a level of professionalism to, to handle that scenario when you, you have an idea what might be going on, but you're trying to, to, to get through it. And I take my hat off to anyone that can do that. Yeah. I was a mess watching Grosjean. I was an absolute mess. I thought, you know, <laughs> thought what everyone thought. I couldn't have kept my words together, that's for sure. Uh, no,
1: I, I couldn't. I couldn't be a commentator. Mm. You know, the, the role that I do as a reporter, I could not just talk like they talk. Um, yeah. And they, you know, I, I don't have to speak in the moment when that's happening, I go off and find the information and, and you know, when I'm ready and I've got the information, I've got something to say. I'm not just having to, to talk over a scenario when you don't really know what's happening. It's a tricky, tricky role.
3: So speaking of interviews, I've got with me here a little motorsport time machine. If you could go back to any era of any discipline in motorsport, where would you go and who would you talk to?
1: I would go back to the 70s because that's the era that I first remember. I'm dating myself here, aren't I? But, you know, uh, what well, first sparked my interest in in motorsport was the likes of James Hunt, who was just, and Barry Sheen. You know, they were both around at the same time. They were massive characters, totally unPC pc when you look at the stuff they got up to, you know, and, and judge it based on um, how we think about these things now. But it was... You know, and 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 James was a. I mean, obviously, I got to got to meet him later on when I was actually working in the paddock. But he was just this sexy, fun bloke who turned up on the Morecambe and Wise show and other programs that you guys will never have heard of because you're far too young. You know, he was he was all across the television then. So um, yeah, and he just had that floppy haired, barefoot. You know. Chain smoking, naughtiness about him that even as a young kid, I thought, "Well, oh, I like the look of that." <laughs> it's more about me than it does about him, really, doesn't it? But yeah, no. so you know that that that's my kind of standout era. That's when I first remember watching cars racing at Monaco and that kind of thing. So so that's probably and all the naughtiness that went on then. I mean, you know, it, there's there's still naughtiness that goes on now in, but it's. You can't be as naughty as even was I was, you know, when I was working, first working in, in Formula One. You know, it was de rigueur to do two laps of the circuit in the hire car on the way back to the airport on a Sunday night. You know, health and safety, there's no way you could get away with that kind of shit now. And and memories of parties and, you know, racing drivers so drunk they were falling backwards out of windows. And, and again, that... You know, I'm sure racing divers get drunk, but not in that public domain anymore. Because everybody's got a everybody's got a phone, everybody's got a camera. You know, so everybody has to be so so careful these days. They don't have the time as well, like we used to, because it is a 24-hour you know data age that we live in. Whether you're working on the technical side of the sport, or on the media side of the sport, people are at it 24 hours a day. So, um, listen, I, I'm sure there are still people having fun in the paddock. I just don't think they have much much fun as. I did in my early days of Formula One and, and we didn't probably have as much fun as there was going on back in the 70s. So that's when I'd like to go back to.
2: So, so do you think that that's almost it's lost the essence of what F1 was? Because I totally agree with, you, you know, you know, certain drivers, they can't walk out of a hotel room without paparazzi everywhere. But back back in that era, they could just be who they were. Do you, do you think that's taken a bit of the fun away?
1: I think we live in a different era. I think it's difficult to compare. You know, the sport is a lot more professional. Um, and that has its downsides, but people don't get killed and seriously injured like they used to, you know, so there, there's a flip side to everything. It, it, it's, there's no better. There's no worse. It's a lot more professional, you know, people, it's a lot more secure as a job. It's a lot more, you know, so you can't, you can't knock it for what it is now. Um, and, you know, trust me, racing drivers still managed to have some fun. Um, it's just not, party central which it would have been you know back then racing drivers would be up on the lash the night before with you know a woman on each arm and 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 one spare and you know get in the car with a hangover you know it was incredibly unprofessional if you think about it Mm. in that respect um so but you know there's there's no better there's no worse it's just
4: different
2: i'm going to join you in that motorsport time machine i think
4: <laughs> <laughs> it seems as like it's kind of much more controlled fun now than what it used to be back then.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is because everybody they don't have time as much time on their hands as, as we had. And as it's you know health and safety, there's no way you could get a hooning around no. the circuit in a minibus now. It used to scare the shit out of me when you know one of the mechanics or the chief mechanic, who was a bit of a hooligan at the time, would often drive around, and I'd be just thinking, just get the wheels, get the wheels back on the ground. This is not my idea of good <laughs> time. But hey. Uh,
4: Going down to track in a minibus, I have done that at the Las Vegas Speedway and it is this, one of the scariest things I've ever done. It's
1: really scary, <laughs> isn't it? With some bloke who thinks he's a racing driver, but isn't. Yeah.
4: You I can you know, see the, the ground. A... I was like, oh my God, I'm looking out the window going, there's tarmac right there, like next to my face.
1: <laughs> professional behind the wheel, fine. Some wannabe who's just showing off. No, yeah. it's not my idea of a good time.
4: You're also an ambassador um, for the, the whole Dare to be Different um, initiative, which is now joined forces with the Girls on Track. Girls on Track, okay, yep. um, Now, I am part of that um, community and I actually met you at Silverstone when um, it first launched. And um, I was at the time, I was a new mum and I had uh, an F1 blog. And I was in two minds as to what exactly to do with this blog because I was thinking, I'm a new mum. Am I going to have time for this? Do I want to get into to motorsport as a career? But I actually um, spoke to you about it and you gave me some some really, really great advice, which... Thank God for that.
1: <laughs> I spoke to you about it. You were really useless.
2: And she quit.
1: She said, I'm really busy. Come back later.
4: <laughs> Because just at the time, I was just thinking, should I continue doing this blog? I had so much more responsibility at home with a new baby. And that was like five years ago now. Um, but how has your involvement um, with this helped inspire a lot more women to, to get into motorsports? I
1: it's something that when I was first working in motorsport there were a lot less girls in the paddock than there are there were a lot less people in the paddock than there are now um full stop so but certainly you know you you could probably count on the fingers of two hands and maybe one foot the amount of girls that there were altogether in the Formula One paddock and I was very conscious of not want to stand out, one of the boys. I don't you know what I mean. It's like, can I carry your bag? No, I carry my own bag. I didn't need, you know what I mean. So I, I wanted to fit in, and I wanted to be one of the boys, and I didn't want anybody treating me any different just just because because I was a girl. And I wanted to kind of just keep my head down and get on with the job. I've now become very aware, and it's partly because of people saying to me, "Oh my God, I remember watching you." Or listening to you on the television and thinking, oh my goodness, I could I could work in motorsport. You know, I've become aware of the importance of visibility, and this is why Susie, who set up Dare to Be Different initially, you know it. That that was her her raison d'être. It's the whole you need to see it to be it kind of thing. So you need to have visibility. You need to have role models. You know, the reason so many little nine year old boys get to karting, they they want to be Lewis Hamilton. They want to be Kimi and not Kimi Wright. Do you know what I mean? You know whoever it may be um little girls who get into karting who do they want well there aren't any formula one drivers so so you need to have people people visibly there to to encourage the sort of next generation to get into things so so i think it's really important um and i'm quite passionate about i get a bit pissed off when people sort of say, oh, Formula One is sexist, because I actually genuinely don't think that motorsport per se, they just want the best people for the job. The fact of the matter is that the majority of the fish swimming in the pond that they're drawing from at the moment, they all they all look the same. They're all male and they're all white. So we need to get, you know, a wider selection of fish in the pond for them. Um, and and, so, and again, that's what, what Dare to be Different and now Motorsport UK, it's all about. It's about... When encouraging young girls to get into STEM subjects, encouraging young girls to, to get in, you know, to all different areas of motorsport. Some of the things I've come across, I mean one of the one of the early days dare to be different. There were various different um activities going on, but one of them, Shell had sent along a Ferrari show car, and they had some little um goggles so you could kind of watch a a particle of oil going through through the sort of you know through the engine and through the whole sort of system and um, one of the I don't know if she was a teacher or just one of the sort of responsible adults that was with the girls that day said to me oh this little girl she knows quite a lot about this car because her brother and her dad are into are into Formula One So I went up and said to the girl, I I understand you know a bit about the car. And she said, yes, this is the whatever Ferrari it was. And the really interesting thing about this car is if you see the way that they've designed this, so the air, it goes around, this is called the side pod and the air goes around the side pod and it goes down to the back here and the diffuser on this car, so the diffuser, so she basically started explaining to me a blown diffuser. And I said to the teacher, excuse me, with the greatest respect, this little girl is passionate about aerodynamics and that's exactly what this is about because you're just assuming she knows about this because her dad and her brother are into it. No, she knows about it because she's into it. We need to be encouraging that. We need to be celebrating and encouraging that. I did a podcast recently and it was all girls. Um, You've got me going on the girls in motorsport topic here, but it was <laughs> it was all girls who were working as as engineers, and um, and one girl who was working as a mechanic and. Five out of five of them, four of them have been to all girls' schools. Now I can only draw my conclusion based on obviously a, a small pool. there, is that girls who are going to co-ed schools, it's the people are gravitating towards the boys when it comes to the STEM subjects. Because these girls are at all girls' schools, the teachers have got to find one of the girls to, to you know encourage towards the STEM subjects. So I just think it, you know, you need to it's about having some, some good positive role models and, and if that sometimes means that you've got to be biased towards getting girls or people of ethnic minorities um, into, into the sport, then so be it. Sometimes that, that has to happen.
2: I remember that it was a podcast we did a while ago. I think it was with Abby Eaton. And she she said exactly the same thing. She said, it's not that girls are less talented. It's that there is a smaller number. So the ratio has to increase. Otherwise, it it will never happen. And um, I know Matt Bishop was very, very, um, very, obviously opinionated on this subject. He would be. Um, But I, I think... I think role models like yourself, Louise, it's and Jenny Go who we spoke to the other week. It's it, it's actually paying off, and and I hope that you guys can see all of that because when when we when we look for writers or whatever, we have the people that you inspire coming to us who want to get involved with F one because you've given them a voice that they possibly didn't think they had before, and it's you know it's thanks to the work that you guys do. So it's it's, well, it's thank nice you. to That's see.
1: Really- that's really kind of you to say, and I, I do think it's I do think it's important. It's something that, as I said in the early days, I was like, oh, don't you know and. Now, as you just heard, I'm quite happy to get up on my high horse about it. <laughs> Apologies if I went on a bit long about that one, but it's important.
4: It is really important. I mean, at the moment, as Ollie said, we're we're actually looking for more writers. And I put a post up on the FIA, Ooh. the Girls on Track community. I, and I had were inundated, weren't you? Yeah, I, I was overwhelmed with messages. I think I had over 100 messages. And I'm trying to get through every single one of them. And I'm going like, sorry, I will get back to you. <laughs> But it's, it's amazing the amount of the amount of women and girls that want to actually get into motorsport. They're just trying to find an avenue to do so. And with Dear To Be Different, for me, that was the opportunity for me. Because as I said, I had an F1 blog. I just didn't know what to do with it. And I remember speaking to you and, and you, you just said, just break down some doors, keep going, don't give up with it. Because yeah. it's something that you're really, really passionate about. If you just let it go, then you'll regret it. And I took that advice and I thought, do you know what? I'm actually going to do something with it. And and here I am, you know, I am with formula nerds and we're doing amazing things, um, reaching however many people it is the month. Talking to Louise. Great people. Yeah. Talking to Louise. I know. <laughs> I'm like, this is like amazing. But, um, What advice would you give um, to to any um, young girl or woman like myself who is aspiring to get into an F1 paddock or looking to work as a mechanic or an aerodynamicist? What sort of advice would you give them?
1: I think, to be honest, it it wouldn't just be for women. It would be for, for anybody across the board, probably similar to what I gave to you. You know, knock on doors. It's about It's not just what you know, it's who you know as well. And okay, for depending on the, you know, if you want to work on the engineering side or as a mechanic or whatever, you've got to have the, the qualifications. I mean, in this day and age, you know, probably if you want to work on the media side, you've got to have the relevant qualifications as well. There was no such thing as a journalism degree or... You know, media studies degree. Back in my day, you you kind of learned on the job. You went to work for a local paper or for a magazine or something like that. So, so I think you've you've got to have that the knowledge. But it's a competitive business, so you've got to be prepared to go the extra mile. Don't aim too high. It's unlikely that you're going to walk straight into a job in Formula One. Um, you know, if you really want to work in the sport. The sport includes club racing. It includes national championships like the British Touring Car Championship. It includes that's where you're going to get your experience and make your contacts, and also have your ear to the ground. Um, you know, once you, once you're in there and you're meeting people, if, if there's a job that comes up somewhere, you know, you'll, you're more likely to hear about it. than. and I think it's important to remember that you know people people might look at motorsport externally and think, oh, it's so glamorous trust me, it's not always bloody glamorous when you're in there. It's long hours. its I would describe it. It's not just a job. It's a way of life. So you've got to be prepared to commit to that to that way of life. You're not there to 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 be a fan. You're there to work. So, yes, I think you've got to be passionate about the sport because otherwise, quite frankly, you wouldn't want to give up the time and you know miss out on all the parties and the festivals and everything else that goes on over a weekend that you have to say, oh, I work, work in that weekend. Um, so you've got to have the passion for it and to you know to, to give you the drive to, to get involved but it's also important to go in there thinking I'm, I'm not here to fangirl or fanboy I'm I'm here to work so because if you're not putting in the hours um, <laughs> I, I, I hesitated before using the word <laughs> fanboy there um, but you know if, if you're not prepared to put in the hours there's going to be somebody else who is
2: Absolutely. And I I think that's almost uh, uh, what you've said is a representation of of who we are, which is we never expected this. We're just passionate people who do it for the fun of it and take the opportunities that that you're given. Um, And in your role, you've obviously seen so many drivers come and go. You've seen uh, people at the beginning of their careers through all the way through it. Um, what, What I want to know is who did you find a real special what we call a star because there are everyone in who's in this you know F1 and the high high tiers of motorsport they're good drivers um but there are a few stars and you know you would you would point out maybe max verstappen and lewis hamilton for example as the current sort of stars that stand out but in your career who have you watched develop into one of those
1: i i don't think you watch them develop because they they're twinkling Away before they ever get into Formula One, you know. I can remember hearing about Jenson Button years before he ever came anywhere near Formula One. Same for Lewis Hamilton. You know, I was there at the Autosport Awards when he famously, you know, this tiny little thing walked up on stage with with his great big karting trophy. And so you hear about those people before they ever get to Formula One level. And I find, you know, I love the fact now. You know, now that I'm I'm working um in national racing as well, so in the British Touring Car Championship, you know, we've got F, the F4 series on our bill. Well, in fact, before that, you've got Ginetta Juniors, which is where kids at the age of 14 can can drive a car. Um, and they can't drive a formula car like F4 till they till they get to 15. So you find a lot of kids who will will use look upon genetta which is a fantastic championship you know for some of them it's the start of a of a of a career in gt's for others it's a way to learn the circuits so somebody like lando norris you know i first came across when he was 14 and first started racing in genetta junior in fact i i heard the name before that when he was karting so so you, seeing those people like like little lando who was so painfully shy um and and you know seeing him blossom into now somebody who is he's got the confidence for what was always there which was a naughty cheeky little personality but you never got to see it um because he was too too painfully shy and that now he's got that that confidence um and that it's that it's all coming out so yeah it's lovely that there's nobody to go back to your original question there's nobody I could say this is the moment that so-and-so arrived because you you hear about them before they ever get there
2: but would you say there are there are stars and there are good drivers?
1: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you've got to say Max Verstappen is an absolute star, isn't he? Um, you know, I'm sure he can be a pain in the ass to work with at times.
2: <laughs>
1: I mean, having said that, I, I, you know, I've not done that many interviews with him because I'm not in the paddock that often these days, but I've had some lovely interviews with him. He's very respectful and I think he's just a bit, bit shy and sort of, you know, a bit protective at times. But um, so for sure, you know, he... He for me is the most exciting driver out there at the moment, Um, and I'm just trying to think of some others that have. That have. Got, I mean Alonso. You know, I remember when Alonso was making his debut. Is any driver who hustles his car higher up the grid than he should be? George Russell. You know, he's getting a massive respect at the moment because he's constantly hauling that Williams further up the grid than it should be. So you know, those are the guys that. And and it's. It's not simple. They've still got to wait for a few, you know, the stars have got to align and, and, you know, fortune's got to go their way. And there's so much needs to fall into place um, for anybody to even get into Formula One, let alone, you know, rise to the top in Formula One. I'm sure there are some brilliant drivers who could have gone so much further in Formula One. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever it might be. Um, But yeah. Did that answer your question? I can't remember
2: what your original question was. Neither can I, but I think it answered it more. So yeah, I'll take that.
1: I always reckon a question is just to prompt a stream of conversation.
3: (laughs) Okay. So if you could go to any country on any circuit with any motorsport, where would your top three places to go be? So for example, I would go to Interlagos in Brazil with Formula One. That would be the, the best place for me to go. Where would your top three be?
1: I would go to um where would I go um Interlagos is fabulous it'd be worth it the atmosphere there to, to be fair I don't think the last couple of times I've been because there haven't been that many South American drivers it you know back in the day there'd be whistles and God knows what stomping and whistling going on from on. um Oh, that's a really tricky question because you see, I'd kind of like to go to the places that I haven't been. Um, So I'd love to go. I'd love, I love Australia. Um, So I'd love to do Bathurst. I'd have to sneak my beers in beforehand now that they have a quota of what you can take in and all of that kind of stuff. But um, so I'd love to do Bathurst. I would love to, I would love to Go to Le Mans as a punter. I've mm. worked at Le Mans, um, but you know Le Mans is, when you're working is just just bloody hard work and a lack of sleep. I'd like to have the lack of sleep because I'm I'm on the big wheel and I'm I'm out around the circuit and I'm you know hooning around having fun. I'd love to experience that as a as a fan, and I quite like to go and again because just because I never have and I'm not a massive fan of the states, but I've never been to a NASCAR race. And it would have to be like in the Carolinas or something like that, proper rookie from the Skokie kind of, you know, good old homeboy, I mean, Carolinians car. Uh, just because I've never been to any of those, so they're kind of. I say I've been to them all, but not not as a punter. So those those would probably be my my three choices.
2: We we were talking about Le Mans the other day with with Sam Bird. So Louise, if you want to go with someone, just give me a shout because I'm I'm absolutely dying to do the same thing. I've heard <laughs> so many stories about how it is just a complete party, but full of real motorsport fans. You know, not your yeah, not yeah. your once a year motorsport fans. It's the hardcore fans. So yeah, I'm. I'll see you there. Absolutely, it's, on that it's full of
1: it's full of people who've just gone along for the booze
2: as well <laughs> i'll definitely be there
1: then <laughs> nothing wrong with that absolutely nothing wrong with that it all adds to
2: the atmosphere <laughs> um so you've you've just got back from bahrain yes. um you said before before we started recording so uh what, what was the atmosphere like out there what are, what are your sort of predictions i'm going to leave this as quite an open question but what are your predictions for this year the year in f1 and, and f2 and, and the junior series
1: I think, I mean, it was it's the first time, I was down in Melbourne last year for the Grand Prix that, that never happened and I haven't been along to one since. Um, so it was my first time back in the sort of COVID secure paddock. So that was all really weird. It's so delineated and, you know, rightly so about where you can go and having to stick to the corridor. I was paranoid about setting foot in the wrong place. You know, we even had like a guard on our lift at the hotel to make sure it was only F1 people using that lift. So they're very strict in their protocol. So I was a bit shit scared about getting something wrong there. Um, and, and you know, you kind of want to go up and hug people, but it's all this kind of elbow bumping going on, which is... Um, but you could... I just think that race, as God it's what we've all been waiting for, isn't it? You know, just more than one team battling... So it's what, I think it's what, listen, I'm sure I was going to say probably Mercedes, but you know what? I think even Mercedes would agree that the sport's got to be captivating. It's got to be engaging. It's got to be exciting, you know, and if you, there's no point turning on your television if you know who's going to win every weekend. So, (laughs) and that's, and it's always been that way. You know, people are, people are sort of kind of hostage to their own success. They, Michael Schumacher and his Ferrari years, it was, everybody was saying, oh, it's just dull. You know, we, well, you can't blame somebody for doing the right thing. But uh, I think even just outside of that, even, as I say, Mercedes would celebrate the fact that it really looks now like we're going to have a proper, proper battles going on. We'll go to a race and we won't know who's going to win. And we won't know. And if we just want all to see people scrapping, don't we? You know, you want to see teams going head to head. You want to see, I actually think there were quite a few Exciting races last year, just because it was all a bit different and things were out of the normal order. And that's what everybody liked. People remember the races where things go wrong and where you, you know, where you do get surprise winners and you get and you get the joy of results when people aren't expecting them. And it's the emotional side of it. That's what we all connect with as fans and as, as viewers. We want to experience the emotions and it I you know it's not very you don't get terribly excited when it's the same person winning every I think even if you're and it sounds a horrible thing to say because you know Lewis Hamilton has been winning all the time because he's so bloody good and he's got such a good team. So you can't take away from the, the the skill and you know what they're what they're doing, but it's not much fun to watch, is it? So 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 that, for me, was the overriding feeling, certainly with the guys that I was with. And I think around the Panic as a whole, it's like, yes, bring it on, bring it on. This is going to be fun.
4: We, we all absolutely loved Bahrain. We just thought it was a, a really, really great start to the season. Hamilton won, um, but obviously there was a little bit of controversy with the track limits. What, what do you think about, about the track limits and Verstappen's overtake? I'd like to get, actually, someone who was there and get your opinion on it as a reporter.
1: To be honest, I can only get the same view as, as people obviously had is that, you know, we were listening to, to Sky and I I kind of bow to Martin's superior knowledge there. And in fact, um, um, Sam Power, who I was with doing the, the virtual paddock club TV stuff, and Sam is also a former racing driver, was saying the same thing. You know, the minute Verstappen let Lewis back pass, Sam said it, wrong place to do it wrong place he's cost himself too much time though he should have waited till he got round to the straight and let him pass there because he could have got straight past him again and um so i, I think i'm i'm sure that you know rebel are kicking themselves um i think it, you know it it was clearly over the track limits so you're going to give the place back rather than have it taken back. But having said that, again, you know, Max's view would have been, I'll take the five-second penalty because I can make that up on the road. So these decisions are just made in, in a split second. Um, was it the right decision? I must admit, I haven't delved into what's undoubtedly been all sorts of opinions coming out ever since to have a look about, about, you know, what people thought and analysis of it. But but you do, you, you've got to feel it was kind of a, it was a bit of a known goal. Um for, for Red Bull um, but hey that's
0: what happens So in 2021 as well we're visiting new venues well, we're not but everyone's visiting new venues that we haven't visited before with Zvandor Saudi Arabia later in the season is there one that you're particularly excited for that you think will provide an action-packed race?
1: I think Zandvoort will be amazing um, I, it's not a circuit I've ever been to but I've heard lots of good stories about you know, Zandvoort races back in the day the Dutch fans are mad in a nice way you know so it'll there'll be so much atmosphere there um and I don't know much about the circuit but you know it's going to be another you know the wind's blowing in the wrong direction you've got sand everywhere and you know I just think that will be I love the atmosphere of a race you know people wax lyrical about this circuit and that circuit I just think I'm not driving around it I don't care if Eau is the best corner you know I'm not driving around it what I want is the atmosphere of a of a Sao Paulo or, you know, the atmosphere of a Monza. It's That's the bit that kind of gets me excited when I'm at circuit rather than the specific layout of the track. Yes, it's got to be a layout that engenders a, a good race rather than somewhere that nobody can overtake. Um, so, yeah, I think Zanville would be, I don't know whether I'll be going to that one, um, but it would be great if I am. I, I've kind of got to fit my my F1 Commitments in alongside British Touring Car Championship, which is obviously my my kind of main gig for, for ITV these days. So I haven't I've only got through as far as Silverstone. I haven't looked past that yet to see which of the which of the Grand Prix that, that I'll be doing. But yeah, Zandvoort would for sure be way up there.
0: We've seen how crazy and involved the Dutch fans are at places like Austria and Germany, let alone in their home country with Max racing in his home country. I think it'll be mad.
1: I know I was in Austria for Channel 4 a few years ago. And one of the things I had to do was go out and film amongst, so there was like a grandstand, like the orange grandstand. Um, And it was sometimes like when you go out there sort of filming the bits with the, you know, with the punters, it's... It's kind of not, I get bitten bit I'm I'm not a kind of cheerleader. I can't do the yeah, give a certain, you know what I mean? I get trust me, you didn't need to out there. You just turned up with a camera and they were all like Yay, behind the camera. And and so uh yeah, they're they're fun. They like their racing, they know they're racing. And there's a lovely heritage of racing there as well. I think that again makes a difference for me. You go to some of the new places where there's no history and there's no heritage, and people come along for the first year for the novelty value. And then after that, you know, you don't get many people coming along, and it, and it loses its atmosphere. Whereas places like that, they'll be so excited to see Formula One back there.
2: Mm. It's, it's the VIPs versus the the motorsport fans, isn't it? And I, uh, what you've just said about the Max fans, I, I was I remember I was at Silverstone, and uh, I can't remember what year it was, but Max overtook someone, and there were just a huge bunch of Max fans there, and they let off a load of uh, uh, what do you call them poppers and all this, and I ended up cheering that, that with was them. Me. Oh Yeah, don't, it was probably Callum, me. but uh, uh, it's people that just love motorsport no matter who it is. And you don't I get think
1: that. that's one thing that I've been lucky enough to go round on the truck for the driver's parade at, at, at a few different circuits. But I can remember going round on the truck at Silverstone a few years back. And it was one of those kind of take your breath proud to be British moments because... They were cheering for everybody. And okay, maybe partly we've got a lot of different nationalities that live in this country, but just speaking to drivers about it, they will say, you know, even foreign drivers will have a lot of respect for the Silverstone crowd because they say they're they're passionate about motorsport, first and foremost. So yes, they'll be partisan. Obviously, you're going to have more Lewis fans at the British Grand Prix than you are somewhere else. And but they, you know, they I think that the, the British audience same when you go to Japan you know they they're just passionate about their about their motorsport and they know their motorsport so so it's yeah I I it made me very proud that because you go some other places and they're booing the foreign and I hate that kind of Mm, stuff
2: it really mm.
1: I just hate booing for stop Mm. so so I love the fact that the the British audience yes it may favor Lewis but it has a lot of respect for everybody out there on the on the track and every single driver you know, he's got somebody cheering for them. There's banners for everybody. It's not just a sea of red like you get in Monza or anything like that.
3: Just before we wrap up, because I can see Ollie's just anxious to to wrap things up. I've got one last question. He's the wrapper upper, is he? He's the wrapper upper He's the host. <laughs> um One last question. Yeah. I want you to predict. Oh give me your prediction and bear in mind if you pass this i'm taking away the motorsport time machine and you can't go and see james hunt in the 70s
1: (laughs) so mean
3: red bull or mercedes who's winning this year you know the only
1: reason like can i just say why i hesitate because we used to have a sweepstake at itv how long was i with itv 10 years i never once won the bloody thing because i always go with my heart rather than with my head go
3: with your heart that's fine my heart's with red bull so I'm i'm saying red bull
1: i'm saying red bull Yes. Whoa, whoa. That's my correct
3: answer. <laughs> you
1: keep, you keep the time on I you. love the Red Bull guys. I've, I've, I've <laughs> hung out with... Uh, bear in mind, Adrian, you and I came into Formula 1 at the same time. You know, we go back a long way. So, And and I've just hung out with those guys a lot more. I know those guys a lot more. So, yeah, Red Bull. Red Bull every time.
2: Yeah. See, Emma said I'm going to cry, but actually... I'm a, Okay, I'm a Mercedes fan, but <laughs> I think I would rather Red Bull won it. I, I really do, because... We need a bit of spice in the sport again. But Louise, we are running out of time. Um, do, do you just want to tell us what you're doing at the moment then outside of uh, motorsport?
1: Uh, oh, that's my cue to talk about my media training, is it? Well, <laughs> yeah, so that's my little... When ITV pulled out of covering Formula One, I kind of thought, first thought, was well, shit, I've got no job. Um, but then I thought, well, actually, I kind of always had in the back of my mind that I needed to have another string to my bow. So I set up a little media training company. Um, And I know people, a lot of people think, oh, you don't want media training because it just makes them boring and bland. But that's not the way I work. It's about giving people an understanding of how the media works so that then they go into the media environment more in control and able to get something out. Bottom line and top line is personalities we need personalities but people are going to be racing drivers are control freaks so if you put them into an environment where they don't feel in the control they're not going to perform at their best so it's about letting them know how everything works and so and that's kind of it started out racing very niche but it's kind of broadened out beyond that so I'm working with all sorts of different you know business people and different sports people and anybody who's either got to stand up anybody's who got to hold a microphone be it or you know, we'll speak into a microphone, be it give an interview or hosting an interview or you know appearing on stage somewhere or making a presentation in a boardroom. That's what I do.
2: So, so Louise, how, how, how have we done out of 10 then?
1: Oh, do that <laughs> 10 out of 12 out of 10.
2: <laughs> yeah, I had you know, to what, ask genuinely that
1: though, genuinely, though, and the, the, this. The, it's going to sound really horrible, but I, I hadn't come across you guys until you contacted me. So, of course, the first thing I did was Google you. I was super impressed.
2: Thank you. That that, that you does mean much. a lot.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, you personally. I meant the website. You know.
2: Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Time machine's gone. Oh, <laughs> No, and again we are just a bunch of people that love motorsport and and it doesn't have to be f1 we we watch all of it Louis, thank you so much uh was my great for, pleasure. for, was for joining fun. us and uh go and get a glass of wine or whatever you want to do on your on your bank Not holiday either. and I'm um,
1: do. How
2: you <laughs> and um if if you would you know later on in the year we'd love to speak to you again but thank you very much
1: you're very very welcome have a lovely easter everybody and meet you again in your case emma yes <laughs> good luck with it all cheers thank thank you you.
2: (laughs) and if you aren't already subscribe to our podcast hit that subscribe button five star rating let us know what you thought in the comments as well Uh, it really helps out Uh, Dan thank you so much for being on the show today thank you very much for having me Oli no not Oli Callum (laughs) thank you very much for being on the show today
3: (laughs) Jesus Christ thank you thank you for having me and tell you what Louise loved the, the time machine didn't she
2: She'll love that i think this is going to be the most regular feature on on our interviews yeah everyone's going in the time machine now everyone yeah, everyone we need to keep a list of where people go in the time machine as well and then write an awesome article about it and emma thank you all so much
4: thank you and i hope everybody enjoys their easter and has lots of chocolate eggs can't wait
2: Yes, not bacon eggs, but we will (laughs) see you next week. Goodbye.
4: Podcast Network.